Chapter Twenty Two of The Country Beyond. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Country Beyond by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Twenty Two. Dripping from the bog holes and lathered with mud, it was the mystery of Breault's noiseless presence somewhere near him in the still night that drew Peter continually deeper into the swamp. Half a dozen times he caught the scent of him in a quiet air that seemed only now and then to rise up in his face softly, as if stirred by butterflies' wings. Always it came from ahead, and Peter's mind worked swiftly to the decision that where Breault was there also would be Nada and Jolly Roger. Yet he caught the scent of neither of these two, and that puzzled him. Many times he found himself at the edge of the black lip of water, but never quite at the right time to see a shadow in its darkness or hear the sound of Breault's pole. But in the swamp, as he went on, he saw nothing but shadow and heard weird and nameless sounds which made his blood creep, even though his courage was now full-grown within him. He was not frightened at the ugly sputter of the owls, as in the days of old. Their throaty menace and snapping beaks did not stop him nor turn him aside. The slashing scrape of claws and the bark of trees and the occasional crackling of brush were matters of intimate knowledge, and he gave but little attention to them in his eagerness to reach those who had gone ahead of him. What troubled him and filled his eyes with sudden red glares were the oily gurgles of the pitfalls which tried to suck him down the laughing madness of muck that held him as if living things were in it, and which spluttered and coughed when he freed himself. Half-blinded at times, so that even the black shadows were blotted out, he went on. And at last, coming again to the edge of the stream, he heard a new kind of sound, the slow, steady dipping of Breault's pole. He hurried on, finding harder ground under his feet, and came noiselessly abreast of the man on his raft of cedar timbers. He could almost hear his breathing, and very faintly he could see in the vast gloom a shadow, a shadow that moved slowly against the background of a still deeper shadow beyond. But there was no scent of Nada or Jolly Roger, and whatever desire had risen in him to make himself known was smothered by caution and suspicion. After this he did not go ahead of Breault, but kept behind him or abreast of him within sound of the dipping pole. And every minute his heart thumped expectantly, and he sniffed the new air for signs of those he most desired to find. Dawn was breaking in the sky when they came out of the swamp, and the first flush of the sun was lighting up the east, when Breault headed his improvised craft for the sandbar upon which Nada and McKay had rested many hours before. Breault was tired, but his eyes lighted up when he saw the footprints in the sand, and he chuckled, almost good-humoredly. As a matter of fact, he was in a good humor, but one would not have reckoned it as such in Breault. A hard man, the forests called him, a man with the hunting instincts of the fox and the wolf and the merciless persistency of the weasel, a man who lived his code to the last letter of the law, without pity and without favoritism. At least so he was judged, 
and his hard, narrow eyes, his thin lips and his cynically lined face seldom betrayed the better thoughts within him, if he possessed any at all. In the service he was regarded as a humanly perfect mechanism, a bit of machinery that never failed, the dreaded nemesis to be set on the trail of a wrongdoer when all others had failed. But this morning, with every bone and muscle in him aching from his long night of tedious exertion, the chuckle grew into a laugh as he looked upon the tell-tale signs in the sand. He stretched himself, and his tired bones cracked. Breault did not think aloud, but he was saying to himself, There, against that rock, Jolly Roger McKay sat. There is the imprint of only one person sitting. The girl was in his arms. Here are little holes where her outstretched heels rested in the sand. She is wearing shoes and not moccasins. He grinned as he drew his service pack from the two-log cedar raft. Plenty of time now, he continued to think. They are mine this time, sure. They believe they have fooled me, and they haven't. That's fatal, always. Not infrequently, when entirely alone, Breault let a little part of himself loose, as if freeing a prisoner from bondage for a short time. For instance, he whistled. It was not an unpleasant whistle, but rather oddly reminiscent of tender things he remembered away back somewhere, and as he fried his bacon and steamed a handful of desiccated potatoes, he hummed a song also rather pleasant to ears that were as closely attentive as Peter's. For Peter had crept up through a tangle of ground scrub and lay not twenty paces away, smelling of the bacon hungrily and watching intently from his concealment. Peter knew the fox and the wolf, but he did not know Breault, and he did not guess why the man's whistling grew a little louder, nor why his humming voice grew stronger. But after a time, with his back and not his face toward Peter, Breault called in the most natural and matter-of-fact voice in the world, "'Come on, Peter. Breakfast is ready.' Peter's jaws dropped in amazement, and as Breault turned toward him, his thin face a-grin, and continued to invite him in a most companionable way, he forgot his concealment entirely and stood up straight, ready either to fight or fly. Breault tossed him a dripping slice of bacon which he held in his hand. It fell within a foot of Peter's nose, and Peter was ravenously hungry. The delicious odor of it demoralized his senses and his caution. For a few seconds he resisted, then thrust himself out toward it an inch at a time made a sudden grab, and swallowed it at one gulp. Breault laughed outright, and with the first of the sun striking into his face, he did not look like an enemy to Peter. A second slice of bacon followed the first, and then a third, until Breault was frying another mess over the fire. "'That's partial payment for what you did up on the barren,' he was saying inside himself. "'If it hadn't been for you—' He didn't even imagine the rest. Nor after that did he pay the slightest attention to Peter. For Breault knew dogs possibly even better than he knew men, 
and not by the smallest sign did he give Peter to understand that he was interested in him at all. He washed his dishes, whistling and humming, reloaded his pack on the raft, and once more began poling his way downstream. Peter, still in the edge of the scrub, was not only puzzled, but felt a further sense of abandonment. After all, this man was not his enemy, and he was leaving him as his master and mistress had left him. He whined, and Briot was not out of sight when he trotted down to the sandbar and quickly found the scent of Nada and McKay. Purposely, Briot had left a lump of desiccated potato as big as his fist, and this Peter ate as ravenously as he had eaten the bacon. Then, just as Briot knew he would do, he began following the raft. Breault did not hurry, and he did not rest. There was something almost mechanically certain in his slow but steady progress, though he knew it was possible for the canoe to outdistance him three to one. He was missing nothing along the shore. Three times during the forenoon he saw where the canoe had landed, and he chuckled each time, thinking of the old story of the tortoise and the hare. He stopped for not more than two or three minutes at each of these places, and was then on his way again. Peter was fascinated by the unexcited persistency of the man's movement. He followed it, watched it, and became more and more interested in the unvarying monotony of it. There were the same up-and-down strokes of the long pole, the slight swaying of the upstanding body, the same eddy behind the cedar logs, and occasionally wisps of smoke floating behind when the pursuer smoked his pipe. Not once did Peter see Briot turn his head to look behind him. Yet Briot was seeing everything. Five times that morning he saw Peter, but not once did he make a sign or call to him. He drove his raft ashore at twelve o'clock to prepare his dinner, and after he had built a fire and his cooking things were scattered about, he straightened himself up and called in that same matter-of-fact way, as if expecting an immediate response. "'Here, Peter! Peter, come in, boy!' And Peter came. Fighting against the last instinct that held him back, he first thrust his head out from the brush and looked at Breault. Breault paid no attention to him for a few moments, but sliced his bacon. When the perfume of the cooking meat reached Peter's nose, he edged himself a little nearer, and with a whimpering sigh flattened himself on his belly. Breo heard the sigh and grunted a reply. "'Hungry again, Peter?' he inquired casually. He had saved for this moment a piece of cooked bacon held over from breakfast, and tearing this with his finger, he tossed the strips to Peter. As he did this, he was thinking to himself, "'Why am I doing this? I don't want the dog. He'll be a nuisance. He'll eat my grub. But it's fair. I'm paying a debt. He helped to save me up on the barren.' Thus did Breault, the man without mercy, the nemesis, briefly analyze the matter. And he cooked five pieces of bacon for Peter.' During the rest of that day, Peter made no effort to keep himself in concealment as he followed Breault and his raft. This afternoon, Breault shot a fawn, 
and when he made camp that night both he and Peter feasted on fresh meat. This broke down the last of Peter's suspicion, and Breault laid a hand on his head. He did not particularly like the feel of the hand, but he tolerated it, and Breault grunted aloud with a note of condemnation in his hard voice. A one-man dog, never anything else. Half a dozen times during the day Peter had found the scent of Nada and Roger where they had come ashore, and from this night on he associated Breault as a necessary agent in his search for them. And with Breault he went, instinctively guessing the truth. The next day they found where Nada and McKay had abandoned the canoe and had struck south through the wilderness. This pleased Breault, who was tired of his poling. This third night there was a new moon, and something about it stirred in Peter an impulse to run ahead and overtake those he was seeking. But a still strong instinct held him to Breault. Tonight Breault slept like a dead man on his cedar boughs. He was up and had a fire built an hour before dawn, and with the first gray streaking of day was on the trail again. He made no further effort to follow signs of the pursued, for that was a hopeless task. But he knew how McKay was heading, and he traveled swiftly, figuring to cover twice the distance that Nada might travel in the same given time. It was three o'clock in the afternoon when he came to a great ridge, and on its highest pinnacle he stopped. Peter had grown restless again, and a little more suspicious of Breault. He was not afraid of him, but all that day he had found no scent of Nada or Jolly Roger, and slowly the conviction was impinging itself upon him that he should seek for himself in the wilderness. Breault saw this restlessness and understood it. "'I'll keep my eye on the dog,' he thought. "'He has a nose and an uncanny sixth sense, and I haven't either. He will bear watching.' I believe McKay and the girl cannot be far away. Possibly they have traveled more slowly than I thought, and haven't passed this ridge. Or it may be they are down there, in the plain. If so, I should catch sign of smoke or fire in time. For an hour he kept watch over the plain through his binoculars, seeking for a wisp of smoke that might rise at any time over the treetops. He did not lose sight of Peter, questing out in widening circles below him. And then, quite unexpectedly, something happened. In the edge of a tiny meadow, an eighth of a mile away, Peter was acting strangely. He was nosing the ground, gulping the wind, twisting eagerly back and forth. Then he set out, steadily and with unmistakable decision, south and west. In a flash, Breault was on his feet, had caught up his pack, and was running for the meadow. And there he found something in the velvety softness of the earth which brought a grim smile to his thin lips as he, too, set out south and west. The scent he had found, hours old, drew Peter on until, in the edge of the dusk of evening, it brought him to a foot-worn trail leading to the Hudson's Bay Company post many miles south. In this path, beaten by the feet of generations of forest dwellers, the hard heels of McKay's boots had made their imprint, 
and after this the scent was clearer under Peter's nose. But with forest-bred caution he still traveled slowly, though his blood was burning like a pitch-fed fire in his veins. Almost as swiftly followed Breault behind him. Again came darkness, and then the moon, brighter than last night, lighting his way between the two walls of the forest. End of chapter 22 Recording by Roger Moline